You know, over the last uh, several weeks, uh, we've been learning that the Spirit of God instills within, within each one of us certain God-like qualities, which overflow into our outward behavior. We call this the fruit of the Spirit. And the source of this fruit is God. It's of God and it's from God. So when we discuss the fruit of the Spirit, today goodness, we are describing who God is. So logically, to understand goodness, we better start with God. The Bible says that God is good. What does that mean? As used in this context, it is not referring to his holiness or his righteousness. Those words, those specific words are adequate enough to describe his sinless perfection. So when we say God is good, we're referring to another quality. His unwavering inclination, his unwavering readiness to bestow blessings. It's God's goodness that we experience in our daily lives, every day, God's goodness. So when we say that God is good, we're describing another quality. And since God is good by nature, he cannot help but be good. Always. There's not a moment in time. Now think of this. There's not a moment in time when God's goodness is not active. It simply flows out of his being, unbroken and continuous. Consequently, his goodness is not drawn out of him. It's not drawn out of him by anything we do or anything we deserve. It's simply who he is. And because he cannot deny himself, his goodness is bestowed on the bad as well as upon the good upon the just, as well upon the unjust. His goodness literally surrounds us, whether we choose to acknowledge it or not. Everything we see in creation, for example, shouts at the goodness of God. When we uh, experience a sunrise or sunset, we are encountering the goodness of God. When we see uh, the richly colored flowers in the meadow... It is God's goodness on display. When the rain falls to the earth to water the ground or feed the crops, it is God's goodness in action. Nancy and I recently uh, had the opportunity to float down the Grand Canyon. At night, uh, it was warm enough, so we slept under the stars. And the sky was so dark, as you can imagine. It was so dark we felt like we could see every star in the universe. And as we sat there looking up, we not only felt his greatness, but we also marveled at his goodness in creating such a marvelous sight for the eyes of man to behold. And beyond creation, there are the little things that we all take for granted. A roof over our head or food in our stomach, hands that can grasp or legs that can walk, eyes that can see. 
a body that can fight disease and, and heal wounds, laughter, joy, all reflections, all mirrors of the goodness of God. And that what about our senses? Our senses were given to us out of God's goodness so that we might enjoy life more fully. We have eyes that see color. We have taste to enjoy food. We have smell to breathe the fragrance of flowers. We can hear the music of birds. Let's, uh, let's go back to something I said earlier. The outflow of God's goodness is not dependent upon us. It's not dependent on anything we do. Yet every false god I can think of bestows good only upon those who do good. Those who gain favor by acting in the right method, by following the tenets of that faith. When Nancy and I made our first trip to China to visit our son, he was living in a small minority village in the southwest corner of the country. And in our exploring, we came across a temple. And on the gates to the temple were carvings. There were carvings of four gods. And each god was angry. I assume they were waiting to be appeased in some fashion by the people. And Nancy and I uh, were struck by the contrast between those gods born of the imaginations of men, and the true and living God of the Bible. Our God does not sit in anger, waiting to bestow good only upon those who do good. He is angry at sin, but he is kind and gracious to the sinner. Now, not only does God's goodness not depend upon us, anything that we can do, it is as well not dependent on the quality of our circumstances that we may face in life. In other words, God is good even though we have faced difficult and tragic times. No matter what our circumstances, God is always good. God does good. And even when bad things happen, we simply trust in his goodness. Remember Joseph, how he was sold into slavery by his brothers, how he was put into prison for something he didn't do, how he was betrayed by someone who said he would help, alone and rejected for years. And yet, God, being rich in goodness, elevated him to the second in command of all of Egypt. And when his brothers finally stood before him, Joseph realized that all his pain and all his suffering and all his loneliness was a product of God's goodness, that God had never ceased to be good. Listen to what he told his brothers. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. And that's why the Apostle Paul can boldly say in his letter to the Romans, and this is a verse we all know, Romans eight twenty eight, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good 
to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Like many of you, um, there have been times when I questioned this truth. When I see the hurt and pain experienced by so many, I wonder, God, what are you doing? When I see the soul in agony, crying, tears of pain for the loss of a loved one, I say, why? Where's your goodness now, God? Where's your goodness in this tragedy, this heartache, this pain? To be truthful, I can't always find an answer. But you know what? God doesn't give me all the answers. (laughs) Instead, what he wants from me is my trust. To simply believe what he says about himself, that he is good. I'm reminded of something said by Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon was an Englishman who lived in the 1800s, and he's considered one of the greatest preachers of all time. And when speaking on the goodness of God, he said this, we must never tolerate an instant's unbelief as to the goodness of the Lord. Whatever else may be questioned, this is absolutely certain. God is good. This is absolutely certain. God is good. And I am certain that we can talk on and on about the goodness of God, and I'm sure each one of you could give stories of the goodness of God in your life. But that's not the focal point of the passage before us. We are addressing the fruit of God's goodness in our lives. As God is good, so are we to bear the same likeness. So what does that look like? Exactly what it looked like in Jesus. If we go back to our original definition of God's goodness, his unwavering inclination, his unwavering readiness to bestow blessings, we see that the life of Jesus fulfilled this definition over and over and over again. In fact, Peter, in describing Jesus to Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, spoke initially of Jesus' the goodness of Jesus as proof of his deity. He said this, You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. And Jesus himself likewise pointed to his acts of goodness when the disciples of John the Baptist asked if he was the expected one. Listen to what Jesus said. Go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And beyond what he said to John the Baptist, 
We see his goodness displayed to children, to Samaritans, to Romans, to tax gatherers, to uh, prostitutes, and even on the cross. Even on the cross, in the agony of his suffering, his goodness was visibly on display. He spoke seven statements from the cross. Three of them were blessings that he bestowed on others. To his persecutors, he bestowed forgiveness. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. To his mother, he bestowed care and protection. We read in John 19 the following. When Jesus then saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. From that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. To a sinner, he bestowed eternal life. Truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. And beyond all this is the fact that he came in the first place. Was it not an act of goodness when he left his heavenly throne and became one of us? Was that not an act of goodness to suffer and to die for our salvation? He came to do what? He came to convey blessing upon us, despite our wickedness and our sin. The goodness of God simply could not be contained. And we look at Jesus and we shake our heads. How can we possibly be like Jesus? Well, we can't in many ways. In our own power, we can't raise the dead or cure the sick or give sight to the blind. But we can't have his heart. In fact, we do have his heart. His spirit dwells within us. And when his spirit controls our lives... His goodness will be on display. His goodness, not our goodness. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, we are told that our very existence as believers is rooted in the goodness of Christ. We are God's very own workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. For what? For good works. For good works which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. While Paul is insistent that good works cannot save us, he is equally insistent that we are saved for good works. As he later tells Titus, we are to be careful to devote ourselves, to devote ourselves to doing what is good. Therefore, showing goodness, bestowing blessings, is not an option. It's who we are as Christians. So, what does a good work look like? How are we to display goodness? 
Well, Jesus told a parable to teach us just that. We know it as the parable of the Good Samaritan. So if you've got your Bibles, turn to chapter 10 of Luke. If you've got your devices, or just listen. But uh, Luke chapter 10. Let's start at verse 30. Jesus, Jesus replied and said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers, and they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. And by chance, a priest was going down on that road, and when he saw him, he passed on the other side. Likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, who was on a journey, came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion. And he came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And he put him on his own beast and brought him to an innkeeper and took care of him. And on the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him. And whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. So what does that, this parable teach us about goodness? What can we learn about goodness from this Samaritan traveler? I think there are four qualities of goodness that he displayed. First, verse 33 tells us he felt compassion. Goodness usually always begins with compassion. We're told in the gospel that Jesus was frequently moved with compassion, a compassion that led him to his good works. Before feeding the 4,000, he said, I feel compassion for the people. Before healing the two blind men on the road from Jerusalem, Matthew tells us that he was moved with compassion. When he raised the son of a grieving mother in Luke chapter 7, we are told that he felt compassion for her. When he healed many from every kind of disease and sickness, we read again in Matthew that he felt compassion for them. So what is compassion? What is it? It's a sympathetic concern for the needs of others. Another word might be empathy, a sensitivity to the needs of another. You know, sometimes it helps to understand a word if we look at its opposite. The opposite of compassion is indifference, and indifference to the needs of another. In our parable, the man was stripped down, and he was beaten and left to die on the side of the road. He needed help, help which was met with indifference by the men that were called men of God. Unlike the Samaritan, they had no concern, they had no compassion for this dying man. They just walked on by. Why? 
What caused them to be so indifferent? What causes us to be indifferent? Is it not a preoccupation with self? We can become so concerned with our own needs and our own priorities that our hearts become hardened to the needs of others. Such was the case with the priests and the Levite. They were so consumed with their own significance. Their hearts were filled only with themselves, and so they had no room in their hearts for anyone else. The heart of Jesus is a heart of compassion. So too must our hearts reflect the same. When we allow Jesus to fill our hearts and minds, we'll notice that our hearts and minds become soft and caring. I often pray. I often pray that my heart does not become hard and indifferent. I don't want to be indifferent. I want to care. But we need to be on the alert. Alert for a a subtle hardness to come in. Alert to to our preoccupation with ourselves so that we forget about other people and our hearts no longer have room for them. So, what happened next? The Samaritan took action. Just like with Jesus, this compassion that he felt led him to act. Goodness is an action word. You cannot claim the quality of goodness if you're not willing to act on behalf of the person in need. It's not enough to feel bad for a person. It's not enough to have pains of sympathy. Such a feeling alone is dead, and it's worthless. As James wrote in his epistle, if a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead. True compassion always leads to action. Well, what action did the, uh, did the Samaritan take? He gave. He generously gave. And what did he give? Two things. First, he gave of his time. Verse 33 tells us that he was on a journey. He had somewhere to go. He had things to do, and no doubt he was on a time schedule. Yet he stopped and interrupted what he was doing to help a perfect stranger. Goodness usually involves an investment of time. And time is a precious commodity. We hold on to it with a vice grip. It's hard to pry it loose. But often, more often than not, the opportunity involved to do good involves our time and a change of our plans. An interruption of the carefully designed plans for the day. And I'm often convicted of my own reluctance and resistance 
and stopping what I'm doing to help somebody that God has put into my path. It's my time. I can't stop or help everybody. But Jesus always stopped. Didn't he? No matter what his ultimate destination, he always stopped. Goodness involves sacrifice, and our time is no exception. The second thing given by the Samaritan was his resources. In verses 35, 34 and 35, we read that the Samaritan poured valuable oil and wine upon the man's wounds. These were valuable commodities that he generous, generously gave. In addition, he gave two denarii to the innkeeper and said they would give more if it was needed. He didn't put limits on the breadth of his goodness. He was all in. Finally, we see that the Samaritan expected nothing in return. His actions were not premised on some future gain or favor. They were not even premised on the man whom he helped. He knew nothing about this guy. Nothing. He didn't know if he was rich or poor, good or evil. He didn't even know where he came from. But it didn't matter. He expected nothing in return. And then this brings us back to the character of God's goodness. His goodness is bestowed without regard to the recipient. And Jesus spoke and taught on that very issue. He said the following. Treat others the same way you want them to treat you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who good, do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. But love your enemies and do good, expecting nothing in return. Nothing in return. In fact, Jesus went even further than that. He said, our good deeds, our good work should be done in secret. How often do we give expecting the esteem or praise of others. A pat on the back. A well done by our friends. Nothing means nothing. So in sum, what does this parable teach us about goodness? Goodness involves four attitudes of heart. Number one, a heart of compassion. Number two, a heart of action. Three, a heart of giving, both of time and resources. And four, a heart of selflessness, giving, expecting nothing in return. Now, if that's what goodness looks like, how do we embrace it in our lives? What must we do to display goodness? The answer is simple. Walk daily in the Spirit. Consistent goodness is of the Spirit. 
and will naturally produce itself in the life of one walking in the Spirit. The Spirit cannot help but manifest goodness. Remember what Paul tells us in Ephesians? We were saved by grace, but created for good works. A Spirit-filled Christian will always display goodness. He cannot help but to do good. It's who he or she is in Christ. Yet in our flesh, in our flesh, we can can quench the Holy Spirit. We can resist the Holy Spirit. We can ignore the Holy Spirit. We can block the growth of its fruit in our lives because of our own selfish, fleshly pursuits. That's why we're told over and over again in Scripture to abound in every good work, to devote ourselves to doing good, and to not grow weary in doing good. The Westminster Catechism says that the chief aim of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. How? How do we glorify God? Well, let me suggest this. Every good work that we do in His name brings Him glory. Several weeks ago, Pastor Aaron referred to a passage out of Exodus chapter 33. Moses was on Mount Sinai conferring with God. God had descended upon the mountain with thunder and lightning and fire and, and sounds of trumpets. The whole earth quaked in his presence. It was a marvelous, unbelievable, awesome display of his glory and majesty, and the people trembled with fear. And yet Moses had the audacity to ask the Lord, Lord, show me your glorious presence. Are you kidding me? Had not the glory of God already been revealed? But God in response said something that I I never really had seen before. Listen carefully. He said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. Did you see that? It was his goodness that proclaimed his glory. God could have displayed his almighty power, appearing as a consuming fire. He could have displayed his his perfect beauty by appearing as a richly colored rainbow. He could have displayed his holiness and righteousness by appearing as a, a, a ray of brilliant light. But he didn't. Instead, he chose to proclaim his glory through a display of his goodness. I can't imagine what that looked like. But rest assured, it was marvelous. Now, if his glory can be displayed through his goodness, isn't it logical that we too proclaim his glory through our acts of goodness? And Jesus said just that when he said this. Let your lights so shine before men that they may see what? Your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. 
your goodness, my goodness, are a testimony to the world that glorifies and exalts God. Our goodness attracts as a light in the darkness. Those in the darkness are attracted to that light, and they come out of the darkness because of the goodness they see in us, God's goodness seen in us. We can't do everything for everyone. We simply can't. But we can do good for everyone that God places in our paths or lays upon our hearts. So never walk away. Never walk away from an opportunity to do good. By your goodness, you're declaring that Jesus is Lord. By your goodness, you're glorifying our Father who is in heaven. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you that you've displayed your goodness to us. Thank you that we glorify you through our goodness. And we pray that you would fill us and that we would be people that do good because you do good. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. 